Now the microphone is attached, or now at least it thinks it's attached. All right, so assignments, uh, no changes from last time. I did extend the homework through Monday. So if you have it and you're done with it and you want to get rid of it, I'll be happy to take it today. But it's not due until Monday slash Tuesday morning uh, for homework number two. Uh, the quizzes, there's two quizzes that are due this weekend that will be due on Monday as well. Uh, quiz two covering chapters two and three. And the first iTunes quiz covering the photos of the day going from the 19th of August, first day of class, until the 6th of September. Those are both available until Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock, so they're due, they're due Monday essentially. First article review is due on the 20th, a week from today. So you started a week from today, right? Since it's not technically due till Saturday morning. I did want to let you know, I did put up there, if you go into D2L, Lesson 4, which we're in right now on telescopes, there is a link for possible articles for reviews. You're not required to use these, but there are 18 of them there now. So you can go on there and there are 18 different articles from, all of these are from Sky and Telescope. You're welcome to select one of those if you want to use that for the review. That's perfectly fine. If you want to find your own, you might still want to look at these as a guideline of the type of articles I'm looking for. So don't go on you know, Yahoo News and get a, a news article. That's not going to be, that's not going to work out. You need a much more detailed article like one of these. But again, you can use one or use your own, but I wanted to give you that as a choice. You can use that for the first one, right? For the first one. Or, or the second, or the, yeah, technically, if you want to pick three of them, you can use three of them. I mean, I'm not going to give you a different set for the, new, for the new ones, but if you wanted to pick three of those, you could use the ones that I give you here. But again, you're not, you're not required to. If you want to find your own, or you find you're reading astronomy or sky and telescope or looking at discover or popular science, you might find another great article that you want to do, and that's perfectly fine. If you're unsure, Ask me before. If you tell me the article, email me with the article and the reference, I can tell you, yeah, that's a good one, or no, that one's not going to work. I also put in here, let me go back to the lesson four. Uh, where are we? Get back there. Oops. I also put in some sample article reviews, something new I started doing this semester. So not just sample articles to review. But I had a couple students this, oh, where is it? Come on. Example student reviews. So I had a couple students this summer who had written reviews that gave permission for me to put them up. So if you want an idea of what I'm looking for in a review, these are very good, one, very good ones. So you're welcome to go look, go look at those, take a look at those, just try to get an idea of what I'm looking for. That way it's less of a surprise when I turn it back and say, you missed this, this, and this. You can at least you know, take a look at what I'm looking for in one of the reviews. All of these are about three pages long. It's difficult to do the review in less than two, page, two regular double space pages, you know, unless you're doing a really weird font or you know, uh, size font. Uh, it takes about three pages of a typical, two to three pages of a typical size font to be able to do it, to be able to complete everything that I ask you for in it. But if you want to take a look, you can go into those. Names have been removed, so I won't tell you who they were. But all three students gave me permission to go ahead and put, to put theirs up and release them for future students. So you're welcome to take a look at those if you want an idea of what I'm looking for in the review, instead of me giving you a surprise when I hand them back and later. So I want to let you know that those are up there and available for you to look at now. So that's all under lesson four. Question, questions? No? We're good. All right. Picture of the day for today. Well, combination of two pictures actually. You see one 
a little bit of difference in the sky background there. Very dark on the uh, left-hand side, a little bit brighter on the right-hand side, different coloring. But picture the same object. You've got the moon there. And it's the crescent moon meeting the evening star. If you looked out at the moon on Sunday night, you may have seen something not quite like this from our location, but you will have seen a crescent moon, and you'll have seen this real bright object close to it. That bright object wasn't a star, but is actually the planet Venus. So if you look out in the west now, anytime after sunset for the rest of the semester, and you'll see a very bright object over there, unless it's flashing red airplane light or something out there, it's actually the planet Venus that is out there. But on Sunday night, they were actually very close to each other. Not quite this close from our location, but they were very close. And you could see the two of them close together in the sky. This was taken from South America. And from that location, it turns out that Venus actually passed right behind the moon, or the moon passed right in front of Venus, depending on your point of view, and was actually what we call occulted, or blocked out, by the moon. So that's why there's two images here. This is the first image, a little earlier in the, in the evening. It was still slightly, still a little bit light. And Venus is there. And the edge of the moon, you can sort of estimate, was out over, you know, very close to it. That was just before it disappeared behind the limb of the moon. A, a while later, Venus really stayed right where it was. The moon moved in front of it. And a little while later, it appeared coming out, peeking out along the illuminated side of the moon. So that's called an occultation when one object passes directly in front of another one in the sky. It happens with the moon being a larger object, happens quite, quite a bit. An eclipse would be sort of a special case of an occultation. But the moon technically occults the sun, blocks it out during an eclipse. Uh, planets can do this as well. The planets can pass, happen to pass directly in front of a star. And we, will, we would see that. You'd see the star disappear. So here, for this period of time that it took the moon to slowly move that amount, of, that amount Venus would not have been visible. And then it, would, then it slowly reappeared. In fact, this is the method by which we study the, study the atmospheres of the planets. Okay? We can't always, until we had spacecraft, you can't get out there and study them directly. But you could watch a star disappear behind a planet. And you could learn about its atmosphere by watching how it disappeared. If it disappears behind the moon, we talked about the moon's atmosphere last time. Yeah, there's some, but it's essentially a big vacuum. So the star is just the star, or the planet is just going to disappear. It's going to disappear as it passes, as the moon passes in front of it. So it's going to completely disappear. Like, you know, blink off, blink on, blink off. It's going to be gone. If there's an atmosphere there, you might see the star slowly fade in brightness as the atmosphere gets thicker and thicker. And you can actually use that to go back and study what the atmosphere of that planet will be like. So ways to study some of the atmospheres of the outer planets before we were able to send spacecraft there. And in fact, it was also how the rings of one of the planets, Uranus, were discovered by an occultation when a star was going to pass right in front of Uranus, but not only did it disappear during the, when the planet passed in front of it, but it disappeared five times before that occurred. Just blinked on, went off for a little, for a few seconds, came back on, went off again, and eventually that was discovered to be the rings of that planet. So the method here is actually something that has been used in astronomy for other discoveries as well. Questions? Occultation, yes. 
when one object passes directly in front of another on the sky. Now, of course, there's nothing close. The moon is much closer. Venus is way, way behind it. But, they're in a, but for our perspective, they're passing right in front of each other. It didn't happen from our location because the moon is so close that it shifts its position a little bit depending on where you are. Not that you'd easily notice, but enough that if you're, you know, remember this whole moon is only half a degree. You only have to shift it a little bit. And if the moon were shifted up a little bit here, then Venus passes right below the limb of the moon and never gets occulted. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, let's go back to telescopes then. That would be this one. So we were looking at this. We were looking at, I put you up this last time. We've gone through most of this. And it was the reason why most telescopes are reflecting telescopes now. In fact, every telescope built in a little over 100 years now, has the large, at least the large professional telescopes, have all been reflecting telescopes using mirrors. And I went through the last three. First of all, some of the light traveling through the lens is absorbed. Doesn't make a big difference in a lot of things, right? But when you're looking for very, very faint objects, you want every light particle you can to be, get to your detector. So you don't want any extra light being absorbed. You're looking at some of the very faintest objects in the universe. And you might be physically counting. You know, you're getting so many photons, so many particles of light. So you don't want a real thick lens is going to absorb a lot of that light. And even if it absorbs 10%, that's a big difference in what you're able to observe, how faint objects you're able to observe. The large lenses, you know, you're getting a lens that's a meter across. It's getting to be pretty thick there. It gets pretty heavy, a big chunk of glass, a meter, meter in size. Pretty thick, few inches, I mean inches, six to eight inches thick, is going to be very heavy. And you can only hold it along the edges. Just as glasses. You can only support them around the very edge. Otherwise, they block the light coming through it. Mirrors don't have to do that. A mirror I can support from behind. And it can be a lot. If having it be heavy is no big deal, because I can put big, heavy support equipment behind it. And finally, lenses need two acceptable surfaces. You got to have the front side good. You got to have that nice and smooth. And you got to have that side nice and smooth. So this side has to be perfect. This side has to be perfect. And it has to be perfect inside. All right, you can't have air bubbles or anything. That's going to distort your image and give you, give you problems. So the whole piece of glass has to be perfect. And if that's a meter across, that's a big piece of glass to get, that, get done that accurately. The biggest ones that are ever made were about a meter in size. We could make a bigger one now but not to the level of what we're able to build large mirrors. Could not make one easily or cheaply that is you know, 10 meters across. Now the other problem that I skipped last time is that light traveling through the lens is bent differently depending on wavelength. That's called chromatic aberration, which is a distortion of color. So chromatic for color and aberration is a distortion of what we see. And what happens is you'll have different colors of light, the whole rainbow coming in, right? You'll get all the light, the star will come in white light. So it'll have red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. And when the light comes through, you have red light coming in and getting bent. 
and it comes to a focus out here some point. Or in this case, I'll say the red focus. But a lens, if you look at the top of that, it's kind of like a little prism. If you just look at that little bit at the top, doesn't it look like a little bit like a prism? Right? Top looks kind of like that. And when light goes through a prism, it gets bent and it gets split into the colors of the rainbow. So if you had blue light coming in with this, the blue light not bent quite as much, or bent a little bit more, I'm sorry, is going to bring it to focus there. If you ever look through a small, cheap, refracting telescope at a bright star, you'll see an image that'll look either slightly redder or slightly bluer and you'll get a halo around it, a red or a blue halo. So it's one problem of refracting telescopes that really can't be eliminated. There are ways to minimize it that you can put multiple lenses together. Well, adding more lenses gives you some other problems with our other things, right? It makes more light gets absorbed, the lens gets even heavier, and you have now have more surfaces that need to be perfect. So there are ways to minimize it, but it's one thing that you cannot get rid of in a refracting telescope. So you're always going to have a different focus for different colors of light. So that's one problem with it that I didn't go through last time. That's called chromatic aberration. It's essentially because the edges of the lens behave like a little prism. They behave like little prisms and spread it up. And you can imagine that if there were a yellow light in here, it would be somewhere in between those two. So yellow light would come somewhere in between those two. Right. All right, so different types of reflecting telescopes. There's a couple different ones pictured here. Uh, the first one on the left is a prime focus telescope. And that means the light travels the most direct path. Light comes in from the star way off in the distance up at the top, bounces off the large mirror, and it will naturally come to a focus at some point, and there it is. That's the prime focus. Uh, there are prime focus instruments where you can put an instrument or an instrument cage up there to observe directly at the, at the prime focus. A typical amateur scope wouldn't be able to use that, right? You're not going to be able to stick your head there in a small telescope and be able to see any light. You're going to block out all of the light coming from, the, coming from that object. So what you need to do for most littler telescopes is to get that light brought to a more efficient place for viewing. There are a couple different ways to do this. They involve putting extra mirrors in. So instead of bouncing the light just one time off the big mirror, it's coming back up. You put a little secondary mirror in there, in the this, this second case, called a Newtonian focus, and you put it off to the side. So the light bounces down, back up, off the mirror, and then your eyepiece there. Now you can safely put your eye there, observe what you're looking at in the sky, and not be blocking any of the light. So Newtonian is one way. That's one Newtonian, Isaac Newton, one that, he, one that was developed by him, or at least in part. Another one is a Cassegrain focus. In this case, again, the beginning is the same. The light comes in, bounces off the mirror, bounces off a secondary mirror. Instead of being tilted, it bounces it straight back down again. So the light comes straight back down through a hole in the primary mirror. That doesn't matter because you've got something here that's blocking out the light that would come straight in anyway, so that little bit of the mirror didn't do you any good. 
So you're not really losing any size of any uh, size of the mirror, any collecting area. And then you can put your instruments right here. Advantage here over the Newtonian is that you could put a heavier instrument to detect it. If you're just putting an eyepiece there, it really doesn't matter because you're just going to be putting a real little light eyepiece and able to observe your object here or observe your object there. If you can imagine putting a big heavy camera on it, you want to take a picture of it. You don't want to just look through the sky at the sky at the object. You want to take a picture of it to preserve it. Well, if you put a big heavy camera on this telescope, okay, you're going to start distorting. You're going to start the gravity is going to be pulling on it and that's going to distort the direction of your telescope, make it harder to track. If you've got your camera way down here at the bottom where you've got your big heavy mirror, everything's a little more balanced. So you're putting all your heavy weight together and it doesn't try to pull things out of, out of alignment. So one reason for using, for using that one. A third one that's used um, by professional astronomers in some telescopes is called a Coudet focus. And looks a lot like the Newton, well it looks like a combination of the two. Light comes down, back up, bounces off again, and then it's sent off this way. So it looks like a combination, but in this case your instrument isn't here. This mirror is actually adjustable. So you can send this light to the same, to a fixed point out in the observing, in the observing dome. You can send that light out to that point. And you can have a big heavy instrument that's receiving the light much too big to be attached to the telescope. So for very heavy instrumentation, you can have your instrumentation in a separate room and you just send the light to there, to that location. So that's good for real heavy instruments. That doesn't work for you know, amateur telescopes. Amateur telescopes are usually one of these two, usually one of these two, two types. A professional astronomer telescope can use uh, don't know of any that use the Newtonian, but prime focus, Cassegrain, or the Coudet focus. So just different ways, telescope is the same, but just different ways to be able to collect that light, to get the light someplace that you can observe it or analyze it. Okay. Here's an example of one telescope. Uh, this is a large Keck telescope. Uh, not a single mirror. One of the things that they do now is instead of trying to make a gigantic mirror that's 10 or 12 meters across, they make a whole bunch of little mirrors. So this one is actually 36 different pieces here. And you get an idea of the size. There's the telescope. There is a gentleman kind of kneeling in that. I don't know if you can see the guy standing there. Right there kind of kneeling to give you an idea of how big each of those segments are. So it's a pretty good size. Uh, each of those segments is a pretty good size area. There's 36 of them that are put together. So what you can do is you now have what are the professional telescopes like this one will use multiple focuses. The light still comes in, bounces off all of these mirrors perfectly positioned, and it can come back up to a prime focus up here. It can go down, straight down through a hole in the middle of the telescope to a Cassegrain focus. It can go and be bounced off to the Coudet focus as well. So there's several different ways the telescopes can be used depending on what you're trying to do. So depending on what the astronomer is trying to do, what kind of instruments they need to use, you would have, you would use one of these, one of the, one of the fo one focus of it. But 
That's just one example. I'm going to show you a few other examples of telescopes as well, uh, different types of telescopes. But you can bounce them all. You might bounce the light several times. You do want to minimize the amount of light that you're bouncing. You don't want to just bounce it 15 million times because every time you reflect things off a, off a mirror, you know, no matter how perfectly shiny your mirror is, if it's reflecting 99% of the light, you're still losing 1%. And if you do that again and again and again and again, that 1% starts to add up to losing a lot of light. So you don't want to keep bouncing it around too many times. You want to do it the minimal amount you need to be able to get the observations that you, that you want. But the Keck telescope is one example of one of these. And I'm going to show you, I believe, a couple others coming up here. Ah, uh, I believe on these you could actually take one out and it would not make any difference. You could take out a couple. If you had to take out one, if it was being repaired or resurfaced, you could actually take it out and the rest of the telescope could still work. So you'd have, you'd have a hole there, but it wouldn't make any difference in your image. You would, all it would make is your collecting area a little bit smaller. In fact, we'll see that. We mentioned, we probably talked, we talked last time about, in last class, 103, or 103, about interferometry where you use different radio telescopes spread apart. So you don't need to fill in that whole surface. You can actually have an empty hole in it if you needed to. I'm sure they also have some kind of backup. You know, they probably have you know, backup ones that are ready to put in if something were to happen to one. If there was something were to be damaged or if one had to be taken out, they do have to be taken out and cleaned and resurfaced from time to time. All right. Now, how do we get that? How do we collect the information? Well, you're familiar, you're familiar with these, these now, right? Everybody has these in your cameras, uh, cameras, phones, a way of collecting an image digitally as opposed to old style film. And that's what's used is a charge coupled device. And it's just an electronic device for recording the image. And NICE is compared to an old style, what was actually used in astronomy wasn't film that you'd use in an old camera but was actually a photographic plate. It was a piece of glass, about six inches or so on a, either square or round, that had a photographic emulsion put on it. And you would put that would be what you would expose to the light and then develop for your image. So very difficult, to, more difficult to use, certainly more time consuming. You don't have the advantage like you do today, right? You know, you take, you take your picture, it didn't come out right, let me take it again, right? You can see it right away. Well. Before, not even astronomically, but you know, you had to take an image, you took images on film, you had to wait until you took them out and got developed and hope everything came out correct. So you didn't really know what you had at the time. Same thing astronomically. Now we can look at images, take an image, and be able to look them out, look at them right away, and see if we need to go back and look at something. So much more convenient. That's what's used, used now for most of the astronomical devices. Plates are still useful for some things where you need really a big wide area of the sky. They're really good at taking you know, a survey of big chunks of the sky at a time that the charge coupled devices are not. They're nice for smaller areas but when you're trying to get a big area you need to get a really big chip and it gets hard to build you know, a nice size CCD that is that large and that large and that efficient because you're also talking about very faint levels of light. So I said, you're familiar with these. You've got them in your digital cameras, cell phones, anything that takes a picture nowadays pretty much is using this kind of technology. But this is something that astronomers have been using for 30-ish years now. 
So for quite a while they were using this type of technology when it was still in its infancy and probably helped really help to develop and push uh, the limits because astronomers don't have the advantage of having lots of light. Right? You take a picture with a camera now, as long as you've got a decent amount of light here, it'll work out just fine. When you're trying to take a picture of a very faint object where you're actually counting, you know, you're not getting thousands of photons of light hitting this little square. You might be getting five, six, two. It has to be extremely efficient in order to be able to detect that. So the charge coupled device is really just a device, a device being used to detect, the, to collect the light. And of course image processing, we can do some of that to try to be able to enhance images. So you go on the left hand side to the right, you're really looking at the same picture of the same thing. If you're able to enhance that image a little bit, you can see that you go from very little, very little detail here, right? There's one big blob. Is that one star? Is that one galaxy? What, what is there? We don't know. It's, it's, there's, too, there's not enough detail. There's sort of hints that there might be something up here. There might be something else down here, but it's all blurred together. As you process the images and are able to bring out more detail, then you can start to see, yeah, you saw these two objects that were further away, but now you start to see a whole lot of detail here that was maybe hinted at. Yeah, it looks like there's something up there. We get more detail. Look, there's, a new st there's another star that's coming in. Still a big blob down at the center. Further processing can actually reveal more and more, so you can actually be able to see more and more detail as you go further and as you get further and further uh, up in the processing. So very little detail in the initial images perhaps there. Uh, detailed processing by computers, you can actually make a much better image as you can with regular, with any regular images today. So image processing is another important, important thing. So all of it, all of astronomy is now digital. The days of an astronomer looking through a telescope are gone. You know, amateur astronomers still like to look through telescopes, but very rarely a professional astronomer is sitting in a nice warm control room while the, the telescope is being computer controlled and watching the images as they come up on the computer screens. Not actually sitting there at the telescope as they would have been 150 years ago. Okay, 150 years ago, maybe a little more than that. You're getting down to the time before photography at all or photography was just in its infancy. So astronomers would be sitting at a telescope with a sketch pad drawing, drawing what they see. Certainly much more efficient and much more reproducible to get a photograph image because then people can go back and look at exactly what was there, not just what someone interpreted. Because your eye likes to play tricks on you. Sometimes you see things that really aren't there. Um, it looks like it's a star cluster. So a cluster, a cluster of stars. Uh, not, not, not sure which one. I didn't pull up which one that is. But it'd be a cluster of stars, and you're just seeing more and more and more and more detail. And this one looks like you're actually getting down to much fainter objects. You're actually able to see objects here that just weren't even present in the other one. But that would be like a cluster of stars. All right, Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, put up in space. I talked about this a little bit last time. Uh, it's been up in space since April of 1990 and was launched up by the space shuttle. That's what you're seeing here. Uh, it's the cargo bay of the space shuttle here, robotic arm that actually lifted the shuttle, that lifted the telescope out of the, out of the bay. Uh, sort of not, not an actual image here of the deployment because the things like the solar panels wouldn't have been put out quite, quite yet, but 
the idea of what was done, that the main piece would have put out and the solar panels would have been deployed when it was far enough away and then would provide energy for the telescope. So all of the energy for the telescope comes from uh, the two solar panels which are then angled to and adjustable to be able to point towards the sun. Advantage of the Hubble Space Telescope is that it's up above the atmosphere. So it doesn't have to look through the atmosphere so it can get incredibly clear views of the universe. You're not looking through the distorting atmosphere. But disadvantage of it is if something goes wrong you can't just go over and fix it. You can't just call someone. If the mirror, something happens to the mirror you can't call you know, an optician who knows how to work on astro- astronomical mirrors and have them fix it, right? You have to physically get up there several hundred miles above the Earth to do it. So that's one of the big problems is that there's no, no easy way to repair the telescope. And in fact if something happens to Hubble now there's very little that you can do to get back up there. So we can get up towards the space station but there's no real good way, no shuttle that can get up there now to actually do any kind of repairs on it. Although I say after a 23 year 23 year life. It's done, it's done good and it's done much longer than it was originally expected to. Yeah? Uh, I don't know if it was real, but like I saw this commercial. Like, I forget when, but like in a couple years, they had like mm-hmm. a trip to like the atmosphere. And it's like $250,000. They have, they've been doing certain things. I've, I've never seen one of them actually come through yet. But there are actually, there's actually a company that's selling seats for a trip to the moon. Yeah. Not, not to land on the moon, but actually a trip around the moon. It's sort of a, trip where you're, you're launched out and you make a loop around the moon and come back. And that's not, that's, that's talking uh, hundreds of millions of dollars I believe. But, you know, of course if they ever get started on it, eventually the prices would come down. But yeah, there are, they are doing things like, there are starting, some of the private companies are starting to do things like that. And I know there's one plan to be able to take tourists to the moon. Again, you wouldn't land on it, you'd just loop around it. But still, you'd get views that only a handful of people have ever had. You know, we haven't seen the far side of the moon. You know. You can count on a couple hands. You need a few, a few more than you have there because you've had, uh, what, Apollo 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 with three people each. So you've had 21 people that have seen the far side of the moon. Less have actually landed on it. But everyone on those three missions actually flew around the far side of the moon. But yeah, there are things like that that people are, are doing. Yeah. I don't, I know there was one that, that the U.S. was working on. As of now, there's just a few, a few other countries. I know the Russians have a vehicle that is able to go. So it's still, the, the space station isn't out, isn't unuseful. It's still, it's just not the U.S. that can get up there anymore. Do we retire all those because using fossil fuels is ridiculous? Are they trying to come up with some other kind of, like, ion propulsion or something? Because fossil fuel, fossil fuel you can't, you can't go fast with it and well, it runs out. It is, but in order to get that kind of energy, we don't have we don't have anything else that's going to give us the kind of energy that we need to launch anything other than using a fossil fuel. But it's like I mean, there's other things that I'm sure people are developing, but like you couldn't do it with just you know electrical power. You know, like you can do an electric car, you couldn't do an electric space shuttle. It's great when it's out in space; it works perfectly. But that actual launch, the amount of energy you need to get it off the Earth, you know, you'd need too many batteries, and they put too many batteries, then the energy, you know then you need more energy because you're trying to lift all these heavy batteries. So. It's just depressing because like your generation you got to watch the moon landing. I'm yeah. sure that was like a huge thing. Our yeah. generation we don't have anything. Yeah. yeah, I was a little kid then so yeah. But 
Yeah, it would be nice to go back. But yeah, I'm sure they're working on other things. But as of right now, I don't know of any other efficient way to get anything off the Earth that would work. Newton's second law, yeah, in a way. If, in terms of thinking, I'm just thinking electrical power. You know, you got all this solar energy, right? So you want to launch the rocket using solar energy, but how do you get it there? You've got to use batteries. You need something. Well, batteries are heavy. If you're on the Earth, it's not so bad in a car. If you've got a few extra batteries, yeah, it's going to affect, you know, fuel mileage and things. But in terms of trying to get it off there, you put more mass in the rocket, then you need more energy to lift it, and it becomes a bad, you know, a vicious cycle you're try trying to get out of. I'm sure they'll come up with some easier way to do it eventually, but image of, images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, it can see a much higher resolution. Resolution I'm going to mention in just a second here is how much detail you can see. So what you typically see is you get a nice image like this. This is taken by a telescope on Earth. Beautiful image of a galaxy. Here's a Hubble image of it. And, but what Hubble can actually see is if we zoom in on this, we don't get any details down here from the, from the Earthbound telescope. We can actually zoom in on this part and get detail deep down with inside and see what's going on further in there. So Hubble can get much more resolution, much more detail able to be seen. And that's as compared to the telescope here on Earth. And the whole difference is that one has to look through the Earth's atmosphere and the other doesn't. The Earth's atmosphere blurs out things. Even a nice crystal clear night, it still blurs out the light, come, a little bit, the light coming through the atmosphere. So it blurs it out and allows us to see less detail than we otherwise would. And that's why the relatively small Hubble Space Telescope, about two and a half meters across for the mirror, so you know, two and a half of these across, not all that big can do, as, do better than many of the large telescopes that are 8, 10 meters across, you know, that fill this room. The entire mirror would fill this room. That's a pretty big mirror. Imagine trying to control that and keep, that's a pretty big piece of, piece of glass. Try to get one of those in space would be really nice. Yes, sir? Why don't you get a mirror system that folded out that way, uh, mm -hmm. like a hydraulic arms that folded out much like a solar panel? Why would they keep it all enclosed? Um, what do you mean, on, on the Hubble Space Telescope? Right. It's a reflective telescope. Yes, it is a reflector. To make something bigger. Is that what you're getting at? You could do something. And in fact, the, the James Webb Telescope, which is supposed to be Hubble's replacement if the funding ever continues enough, is going to use, I think, some sort of technology similar to that to be able to make a much larger mirror. You do need to enclose it to some extent because you have to be able to shield it from stray light. And radiation. And yeah. But yeah. So you want some kind, you need some kind of shielding on it because you're above the Earth's atmosphere. You know, Earth's atmosphere is good, Earth's atmosphere is bad. It also shields us from stuff that we don't have to worry about. Astronomical telescopes on the ground are wide open. Right? They don't have all this big shield. They're not completely enclosed. You don't have to completely enclose the mirror as long as they're done on a dark site and you know, what did I, I, show, I showed you the other one, right? It showed a pretty good, let me go back a couple. Where was it? Go back a little bit. Back further than I thought. There's the Keck telescope. This is not a cutaway. This is actually the grid work would be what's there. So there's no shielding from that. It doesn't need it because it's not going to get any stray light. 
It's inside a dome, so why do you have to put big, heavy metal casing around it? Out in space, you don't have that. You, don't, you can't put a big dome around it to point things out of. And you have you know, charged particles traveling around. You want to shield that mirror as much as you can. But yeah, the technology you're talking about, actually we use something like that on Earth that we'll talk about here in a little bit. And it's been talked, some of that, something similar has been talked for some of the telescopes to, to replace Hubble. Again, if the funding ever goes, goes through for them. All right, so talk about telescopes in general now. Telescopes have three different things that we're going to talk about in terms of powers of a telescope. Everything comes in threes, right? The first one is light gathering power. So three powers of a telescope. How much light can the telescope collect? That's important. Why? Because it lets you see more detail. It lets you see fainter objects the bigger your telescope. So a bigger telescope is going to be able to see fainter objects. Why do astronomers keep building big, why don't we just keep using you know, two meter, three meter, four meter telescopes? Why do we keep going for eight and 10 and now looking for 20 and 25 meter telescopes to be built in the next 10 years or so? It's all because of this. It's all because it's how much light they can collect. The amount of light you can detect depends on the diameter of the telescope to the second power. So it doesn't just depend on the diameter or radius. The dependence will be the same. It doesn't just depend on the diameter of a telescope, meaning that if you have a 2 meter telescope and a 4 meter telescope, this isn't going to collect twice as much light. It's going to collect, it's two times bigger, so it's not two times as much light. It's going to collect four times the amount of light. If you went up to an 8 meter telescope as compared to a 2, 4 times bigger, 16 times light gathering power. That means you can see objects 16 times fainter. So something that would be almost invisible in this telescope, we can see things that are that faint and 10 times, 12 times, 15 times fainter are now visible with this much larger telescope. That's kind of what the image is showing you here. The two images are of the same galaxy taken with the same length of exposure, everything else is identical. The only difference is that they were taken with two different telescopes. One a little bit smaller telescope, one a little bit bigger. The details, the, the general outline is still the same, but the details are a little bit different. You see a little bit more structure up to this side. This would be a galaxy, you have a little bit more structure up to this side. And you see a lot more down here that's pretty much invisible up here. It's not that it's not there. You just didn't have a big enough telescope. You weren't able to collect enough light to be able to make it, to be able to bring it to be seen. So that's one of the reasons astronomers keep going to bigger and bigger telescopes is to be able to collect more light and be able to look at fainter objects and more detail within a single object. Being able to see things that were very faint relative to this brighter object. So you want to look at bigger telescopes. One way is to, you want to look at bigger telescopes. One thing is to look for fainter objects. Astronomers are always looking for things, you know, at the edge. We're looking for the most, the faintest objects uh, that are the most distant and trying to study those. So you need the biggest telescopes to be able to see those. Now, Eris 
that would be getting, getting to bigger telescopes, being able to see fainter, fainter objects. Yeah, that would be part of what, what it was, being able to get larger and larger telescopes. Yeah? That's a, that's a different gal- yeah, ga- galaxy. They're the same galaxy. So like all those lights around it are like other galaxies? The, all the lights around it, uh, some of those could be other galaxies. In fact, some of them are. Some of them are also stars in our galaxy that just happen to be in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't see a lot of that in the top image. You lose a lot of that. And it comes out, a, comes out much better in this image. We're able to see a lot more detail. And it's just a twice, twice as big a telescope. You went to another telescope, two times as big, you're able to see things four times fainter. You're probably going to pull up more detail here and more here and start to be able to get a better idea of really what's happening with that, with that galaxy. Good, good. Um, one way we do that is actually putting multiple telescopes together and using multiple telescopes to observe. Here's a bunch of telescopes out in Hawaii on Mauna Kea. So there's the Keck telescopes, a set of two telescopes you can use, which actually are a pair that can be used to observe at the same time. You can observe the same object and then therefore double the size of your telescope without making one bigger, without making a bigger telescope. Right? You made two smaller telescopes, much easier to do, much cheaper. It's a lot cheaper to make a five meter mirror than it is to make a ten. A lot cheaper to make a two meter mirror than it is to make a five. If you can put two telescopes observing the same object at the same time, you can then combine those together and get the effect of one telescope that's twice as big. So twice the light gathering power. In order to be able to get that with the optical telescopes, they've got to be pretty close together right now. Yeah, you could, with optical telescope, they just got to be close together right now. They can't do it. You can't do one here and you can't do one across the country. So they have to be relatively close together like this at this point, just because of, the, because of how short wavelength the radiation they're looking at is. Radio telescopes we'll see in a little bit are completely different. So you'll also note a couple other telescopes up here. There's an infrared telescope, infrared telescope. Very easy to view infrared radiation from high mountains. So yes, out here in Hawaii, right in the middle of the ocean, but when you're up on the high mountain, it's very dry. So the atmosphere there is very dry. Infrared radiation gets through very well. So we can actually look at, study infrared radiation as well. So lots of telescopes are typically put together. So there's lots in Hawaii. Um, uh, Kitt Peak in Arizona has a lot of telescopes there. Uh, sections down in Chile have a lot of telescopes. So tend to put them grouping together, not just one here and there, uh, just for convenience, being able to have them all at some of the best, some of the best sites, get a lot of telescopes there together. Here's another example. This is the very large telescope. This is, the one, this is one of the ones down in Chile. There's a set of four telescopes together. So maybe getting a little closer to your triangle idea, maybe a bit, or some sort of different pattern where you have three here in a line and then one that's a little bit further out. And again, they could work independently if you needed them to, or you could work them in, work them together. Not a very good name. It's a very large telescope. It's a very large telescope. Astronomers are not always creative on their naming of some of, the, of, some of, of some of them. I'm sorry? Yeah, it's a very large telescope. We just, we just named it. So. 
All right, second one. We had light gathering power, we have resolving power. Resolving power is how much detail you can see in the object. So how much detail can you see in the thing, when whatever it is you're looking at. It depends on the wavelength. So this depends on the wavelength of light. Shorter wavelengths get better resolving power, longer wavelengths get, get worse. And it depends on that and it depends on that divided by the diameter of the telescope. The smaller the resolving power, the better. So you want a real small number for the resolving power. That means when you get a real big telescope, you're putting a big diameter down here and that makes this number smaller. So a bigger telescope is going to be able to give you a better resolving power. Bigger telescope, better resolving power will, will be obtained. Not quite to this effect. If you have a two meter telescope, for inter this is terms of light gathering power, for resolving power, it does go directly. You have a telescope that's twice as big, its resolving power, its theoretical resolving power is going to be two times as good. Four times as big of a telescope, four times the resolving power. So resolving power will get better depending on the telescope. Not quite as quickly as the light gathering power, but the combination together is when you've gone to a telescope that's four times bigger than the one you had, you're now seeing objects that are 16 times fainter and you're getting four times the resolution. You're able to see four times the amount of detail. So that's what's showing here with the, the sort of the Diagram down here is just showing the way the light spreads out because of the nature of light being a wave. It naturally will spread, will spread out. And that's what causes us to get a pattern here with the object and then you get these rings around it and that is sort of, there's sort of a limit to how big you can see. That depends just on how big the telescope is. Now there's also resolving power that depends, on, there's also resolution that depends on the Earth's atmosphere. That's completely different. So this is theoretical. So theoretically, a 10 meter telescope on the surface of the Earth should do four times better than the Hubble Space Telescope. It's four times bigger. But the disadvantage is it's got to look through the atmosphere that, uh, that the Hubble Space Telescope does not have to do and that serves to blur it significantly more. So here's an idea, idea of improving the resolution. Um, if you have a very low resolution all blurred out, you see your object there, you see some structures around it, but as you go to a higher resolution, start to see a little bit more, things come a little bit better resolved, you start to see more objects there, even better at a higher resolution, and then again, same galaxy we were looking at before in the other images, and you get to the highest resolution here, and you're starting to see a lot of detail, a lot of these stars, again, they're all there in that image, you just don't have the power to be able to see them. They're all their light is all smeared out because of simply the nature of light itself. The way light works smears all of that out. Uh, yeah. Do you have any idea what the best resolution that we ever got, say within the past 10 years or so? <sighs> With Hubble Space Telescope, we're talking, you know, tiny, fra we're talking fractions of an arc second. So very, very small numbers we're getting now. 
on Earth, we're actually getting, we're getting to the point where we can do better on Earth than Hubble, Space, than Hubble Telescope does. Some of the larger mirrors with new technology that I'll talk about is actually able to do a lot better. But it's fr tiny fractions. It's much, much better than this. It's fractions of an arc second or so. Yeah? So when like, you have like a team of telescopes and one single object, mm -hmm. how does that affect the diameter of the telescope? The diameter of the telescope. Or is that just for It depends on which of these you're looking at. Okay. If for the, in terms of this one, if you've got two telescopes that are the same size, your gathering power, your telescope's twice as big. But your resolving power? When you do your resolving power, it depends. Those are your two telescopes. Right. It depends on how far apart they are. So if you have one on one side of the Earth and the other one on the other side of the Earth? Then you have a telescope the size of the Earth. Doesn't, we can't do it with optical telescopes yet. We don't have the technology to be able to combine the The wavelengths are just too small. Radio telescopes, which we'll talk about on Monday, do do that. On radio telescopes, we can actually have Radio telescope on this side of the Earth, radio telescope on that side of the Earth. Observe it. Our effective radio telescope for this part, not for this part, doesn't give us greater light gathering power. Well, yeah, twice as much. But it does give us tremendous resolving power. So say you took a telescope and you put it in orbit around Jupiter. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a telescope the size of whatever the distance, whatever the distance between Earth and Jupiter is at that point. Yeah. So you can get some pretty tremendous telescopes at that time. Let me see what I have up here. Um, what time is it? Well, we're a little past. I'm going to go ahead and I'll go ahead and stop there and I'll finish up uh, this portion on Monday. We should be through all of this Monday, so you'll be fine. If you want to take the quiz early, you can. It's still available through Monday, so if you want to wait until I've covered everything else on Monday, you'll be fine. You'll be fine as well. So I will do that. But I'll go ahead and talk. This is sort of the atmospheric effects, and then I'll come back to the third power. These are the two important ones. The third one is the least important. So I'll let you take, take, take your, about your 10 minutes, and then we'll come back and do our lab, which I've got most of it set up already. So I'll get the rest of that set up. Any other last minute questions, questions? OK. We will stop.